Chapter Twelve of the Posthumous Essays of John Churton Collins. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Posthumous Essays of John Churton Collins. Chapter Twelve. Matthew Arnold, Part One in striking contrast to the transcendentalist whose career and work we have been considering stands matthew arnold here all is balance sobriety and measure here refined good sense precision lucidity all that a temper and genius finely touched delicate sensitive pure nourished and inspired by intimate habitual and most sympathetic communion with what is excellent and classical in the leading and master literatures of the world all that such a temper and genius thus educated and disciplined might be expected to achieve but in character to employ the word in the emersonian sense strangely and significantly deficient having the power to charm but not to impress and inspire appealing rather to what is implied in taste than to what is implied in soul as a critic exquisite and within certain consummate limits unrivalled among his countrymen as a satirist quite delicious and worthy to stand as a master of irony beside the author of the lettres provinciales as a poet in poetic quality as well as in fascinating felicity of expression second only among his contemporaries to tennyson but he aspired to be a reformer and teacher he waged a lifelong war against philistinism the curse of our nation that quality which he himself defined as quote, on the side of beauty and taste vulgarity on the side of morals and feeling coarseness on the side of mind and spirit unintelligence footnote introduction to celtic literature and footnote but here he failed in character he was not made of the stuff out of which reformers are made he had no enthusiasm nothing of the magnetism which intensity of conviction and intensity of purpose inspire he was timid sensitive and self-conscious afraid of ridicule and especially of the ridicule which earnestness and emphasis so easily excite in superior people he was not one of those who can lose themselves to find themselves perhaps the nearest analogy to him among reformers is erasmus like erasmus he had no taste for martyrdom for leading desperate charges or forlorn hopes like erasmus he was deficient in moral courage like erasmus he fought with weapons too light and finely tempered to make any impression on his pachydermatous adversaries and when he entered the arena of theological controversy and pleaded against the orthodox party for the reinterpretation and reconstruction of christianity he failed equally he carried little weight and no authority 
partly for the same reasons that he failed as an anti-philistine but partly and here perhaps mainly for another reason he had not the requisite credentials in the conflict with philistinism no one could question his right to speak with authority on all that pertained to bellus letres but in theology he was no scholar and its pundits remained contemptuously indifferent to an adversary who knew nothing of hebrew nothing of the oriental languages little of patristic literature little of the vast literature which has gathered round the subject in modern times and whose knowledge was somewhat superficial and here he made many grave mistakes mistakes arising not merely from insufficiency of learning and information but mistakes of temper at his best matthew arnold may be regarded as the crown and flower of our old academic culture newdigate prizeman fellow of oriel professor of poetry his genius took its ply and color from academic society and associations when that society was in the oxford of eighteen forty three at the acme of its potentiality and accomplishment and when the common room at oriel was in its glory when newman was preaching at st mary's and church and stanley and clough and froude and Jowett were as arnold's coevals or seniors all busy and all influential in their several spheres when oxford was still aristocratic and conservative still in arnold's own words whispering the last enchantments of the middle ages still true to the ideal still true to the beautiful still standing foursquare to the aggressions and menaces of the democracy the philistines in the das gemini it is all gone now for good or evil some of us think for evil that oxford of arnold's youth and apprenticeship it produced a type of men which is now all but obsolete and which will soon be as extinct as the dodo or the ichthyosaurus the type that gave us the scholar gypsy and thyrsus and the essays on criticism and friendship's garland and ionica as dante summed up in the most comprehensive sense the middle ages as well on the side of achievement as on limitation so matthew arnold may be said as comprehensively to sum up in his character and in his writing academic oxford at its acme not in its relation to learning but in its relation to life his life was singularly uneventful born at lalaham near staines on christmas eve eighteen twenty two he was the eldest son of thomas arnold afterwards the famous headmaster of rugby and mary his wife who was a miss penrose belonging to a most scholarly family and a woman of distinguished intellect and character at thirteen and a half years of age he was sent to winchester school then under a most accomplished classical scholar dr moberly afterwards bishop of salisbury but after remaining at winchester for about a year he was removed to rugby that he might be under the surveillance of his father at rugby clough the poet and thomas hughes the author of tom brown's school days were his schoolfellows in eighteen forty he gained the balliol scholarship and went into residence at balliol in eighteen forty one 
after winning the newdigate prize poem on cromwell in eighteen forty three and obtaining a second class in the litra humanarius school for which had his father been alive he would probably have been sternly rebuked he was elected fellow of oriel then a very great honor in eighteen forty five for a time he returned to rugby as an assistant master under dr tate teaching classics to the fifth form but in eighteen forty seven he was made private secretary to lord lansdowne then president of the council in eighteen forty nine in his twenty-seventh year he published his first volume of poems the strayed reveller and other poems by a which fell stillborn from the press on april fourteen eighteen fifty one began his long connection with education the official business of five and thirty years of his life for in that year he was appointed one of the inspectors of schools the drudgery involved in this office must have been very galling and irksome to him and indeed it reminds us of schiller's jeu de spirit pegasus in harness to see the poet of thyrsis and the scholar gypsy dragging in such a yoke but he was neither recalcitrant nor complaining he was not as sir joshua fitch once sighed to me an ideal school inspector and all that the fancy of his official superiors and coadjutors could paint but he was a more conscientious drudge than caliban and in the higher and more ornamental departments of his calling he did splendid services to education as is proved by his work as foreign assistant commissioner on education to visit france holland belgium switzerland and piedmont in eighteen fifty nine embodied in a parliamentary blue book published afterwards in eighteen sixty one as popular education in france with notices of holland and switzerland by his services as a critic of the revised code of eighteen sixty two by his report upon schools and universities on the continent and by his report on the education of germany published eighteen seventy four just after the initiation of his official life he made a very happy marriage and if the burden of much which life entailed on him was heavy it was lightened by being shared in eighteen fifty two appeared empedocles on etna and other poems by a again the poems fell quite flat though his volume contained some of the best things he had ever wrote in eighteen fifty five appeared a second series of poems this time under his own name in eighteen fifty seven he was elected professor of poetry at oxford an office which he held for a double term of ten years as professor of poetry he produced much of his best critical work initiated in eighteen fifty eight by his drama of merope with its elaborate preface justifying classicism this was followed in eighteen sixty one by his three lectures on translating homer supplemented in the following year by a fourth these are among his most valuable critical essays in eighteen sixty five appeared what is probably his masterpiece in criticism and in style the essays in criticism his last lectures as professor of poetry were the four on celtic literature published in eighteen sixty seven this is perhaps matthew arnold's most comprehensively representative work in criticism as well on the side of limitation and defect as on the side of excellence 
the same year saw the appearance of new poems which with much which did not add to his reputation contained also one of the most exquisite of his poems and perhaps his masterpiece the memorial verses on clow entitled thyrsus in eighteen sixty nine appeared the manifesto his first serious and systematic attack on philistinism and plea for sweetness and light in culture and anarchy a series of essays reprinted from the cornhill while between eighteen sixty six and eighteen seventy he was running a series of letters through the pall mall gazette dealing chiefly with the franco-prussian war afterwards republished as friendship's garland in eighteen seventy his theological works began with st paul and protestantism in which he may be said to have broken with orthodoxy this was succeeded in eighteen seventy three by literature and dogma in which he was even more outspoken protesting against the anthropomorphic idea of god and reliance on miracles as supports of christianity and sometimes in a spirit of levity which to say the least was exceedingly unbecoming two years afterwards in god and the bible a series of essays reprinted from the contemporary review he gave what was at once a sequel to the former work and a reply to its critics with his last essays on church and state his theological writings closed over his contributions to current politics we need not linger the best the only permanently valuable work of his last days as indeed of his whole life belongs to literary criticism to essays scattered through what he calls the mixed essays and to what is included in the posthumous volume the second series of essays in criticism and in what is included in the american discourses he died with appalling suddenness at liverpool april fifteenth eighteen eighty eight when we say that matthew arnold had his full share of sharp and bitter domestic sorrow in the loss of loved children that his services as a public servant met with the most niggard recognition and that his application for posts which might have relieved him from repulsive drudgery and given him leisure for more congenial pursuits he was always disappointed that during the greater part of his life he had neither fame nor authority nor influence filling a subordinate position and if not actually poor always grazing embarrassment that his literary work was not easy to him but that it was the result of very severe labor that he felt and acknowledged that he had not been what men call a success in life though he would gladly have shared life's honors rewards and vantage grounds for he was neither an enthusiast nor recluse but quite a man of the world and of society or at least affected to be such yet for all this he was never other than cheerful genial playful and uncomplaining the most delightful of companions the most affectionate of husbands of fathers and of friends a single sentence in one of his letters is so significant both of his position and of his temper that it may be quoted writing to mr john now lord morley he says i announced yesterday at the office my intention of retiring gladstone will never promote the author of literature and dogma if he can help it and meanwhile my life is drawing to an end 
and i have no wish to execute the dance of death in an elementary school see under that quote it was indeed sufficiently disgraceful to england that he should have had to execute some of the most beautiful poems and some of the most precious critical essays in our language as he actually did in elementary schools but this is only very partially the arnold who concerns us this is the arnold who is lying in callaham churchyard the arnold who concerns us is the arnold of the personality impressed on his writings and more especially on his poetry as a prose writer matthew arnold comes before us in four distinct capacities as a critic of modern life and society as a critic of literature as a critic and reconstructor of popular theology and as a critic of the theory and practice of education an account of his work in relation to education will not come within the scope of this essay but those who are interested in it may consult with advantage sir joshua fitch's monograph on the arnolds in the series on great educators published by mr heinemann i shall not so much criticize as interpret matthew arnold's attitude tenets and opinions and therefore with as little critical commentary as possible i propose to review his chief writings in each of the divisions under which those writings may be arranged in dealing with modern life and society he was as we shall see more successful as a critic and satirist than as a reformer or even as one who contributed in any way directly to reform it is not in my nature he said of himself to dispute on behalf of any opinion even my own very obstinately hence he never inspired enthusiasm he never even succeeded in creating the impression that he was in earnest an incomparable master of persiflage and irony the rival of lord beaconsfield as a coiner of delicately felicitous phrases and turns of sarcasm most urbane when most irritating most pleasant when most caustic he seemed to revel in season and out of season in the display of these accomplishments a reformer who begins by resolving his reformies into barbarians philistines and populace each analyzed into caricatures which are masterpieces of satire and ridicule and then in the way of admonishment and advice assumes toward them the attitude assumed by shakespeare's touchstone towards corin and audrey is hardly likely to furnish the cause of reform and this was too often matthew arnold's attitude and method and therefore he carried little weight in the conflict in which he engaged he failed in impressiveness and authority and a reformer who fails in these qualities is pretty sure to fail in his object the main object and purport of culture and anarchy which appeared in eighteen sixty nine is described by himself this is a quote from the preface the whole scope of the essay is to recommend culture as the great help out of our present difficulties culture being a pursuit of our total perfection by means of getting to know on all matters which most concern us the best which has been thought and said in the world and through this knowledge turning a stream of fresh and free thought upon our stock notions and habits which we now follow staunchly but mechanically 
vainly imagining that there is a virtue in following them staunchly which makes up for the mischief of following them mechanically End of that quote. it will be seen that the most importantly significant words here are our present difficulties matthew arnold's urbane expression for what he will presently analyze in a very irritating manner our stock notions and habits which he will submit to a similar analysis and lastly what he means by culture our present difficulties are the predominance of such ideas as brights who believe that the people of the united states have offered to the world more valuable information during the last forty years than all europe put together and who had defined culture as a smattering of the two dead languages of greek and latin the predominance of an impression that england is great and admirable because of its machinery because everyone can say what he pleases because we can do as we like because of our coal supply our wealth our population and our good health in other words the predominance of the doctrines preached by such men as roebuck Udger, bradlaff hepworth dixon robert buchanan and other radicals nonconformists and agnostics and roared out each morning to an approving and admiring nation by the young lions of the daily telegraph if to these be added the ingrained philistinism of the typical englishman quote, on the side of beauty and taste vulgarity on the side of morals and feeling coarseness on the side of mind and spirit unintelligence end quote and the fact that in a country the very breath of whose being is freedom there are no bodies no institutions no sort of organization of sufficient weight and authority to counteract this anarchy if we remember this we shall have no difficulty in understanding the origin of what he calls our present difficulties with regard to our stock notions and habits they may be deduced from the causes for their predominance constitutes the causes of our present difficulties the remedy lies in culture and the great men of culture are those who have had a passion for diffusing for making prevail for carrying from one end of society to the other the best knowledge the best ideas of a given time who have labored to divest knowledge of all that was harsh uncouth difficult abstract professional exclusive to humanize it to make it efficient outside the clique of the cultivated and learned yet still remaining the best knowledge and thought of the time and a true source therefore of sweetness and light and culture in itself is a study of perfection the harmonious expansion of all the powers which make the beauty and worth of human nature it is what the greeks call infnia the possession of a finely tempered nature a harmonious perfection a perfection in which the characters of beauty and intelligence are both present which unites as swift calls them the two noblest of things sweetness and light in analyzing english society as he does in the third chapter into barbarians for example the aristocrats tennyson's broad-shouldered genial englishman 
philistines the average members of the middle class the populace the british workmen and the patrons and admirers of such prints as the british banner he shows how deplorably deficient all are in the remotest appreciation of such ideals as culture implies how ugly how dismal how cheerless their lives look he says at the life of the aristocracy with their culture all external their gifts and graces in looks manners accomplishments prowess their field sports their capacities and potentialities as compared to what they are look at the life imaged in such a paper as the nonconformist a life of jealousy of the establishment disputes tea meetings openings of chapels sermons footnote from sweetness and light End footnote. look at the suicide of a mr smith secretary to some insurance company who it was said labored under the impression that he would come to poverty and that he was eternally lost footnote poro unum est necessarium End footnote in a most interesting chapter chapter four he analyzes the characteristic of the two great powers in culture and moral influence hebraism and hellenism the essentials of the first he sums up admirably in the preface to walk staunchly by the best light one has to be strict and sincere with oneself not to be of the number of those who say and do not to be in earnest this is the discipline by which alone man is enabled to rescue his life from thraldom to the passing moment and to his bodily senses to ennoble it and to make it eternal and this discipline has been nowhere so effectively taught as in the school of hebraism but it is time he says to hellenize and to praise knowing for we have hebraized too much and have overvalued doing and what is hellenizing striving to see things in their true nature and as they really are insisting on perfection not on one side of our nature but on all sides cultivating a full harmonious development of our humanity a free play of thought upon our routine notions spontaneity of consciousness sweetness and light understanding what is implied in the true saying that no man who knows nothing else knows even his bible acquiring measure balance symmetry avoiding fanaticism and extravagance through the attainment of apikia sweet reasonableness the being possessed by a disinterested desire to converse with what is excellent and beautiful with what expands elevates and refines our nature this is hellenizing this is culture and when we have learned to temper with this the hebraizing which we have too exclusively cultivated and admired then we may hope that if any of us have the misfortune to commit suicide it will not be for the reasons that impelled poor mr smith to take that unfortunate step then we may hope that philistinism will at least cease to be influential men seldom respect those who amuse them and are never docile when irritated and as culture and anarchy had both these effects it made very little serious impression on arnold's contemporaries 
now however we see how much wisdom underlay its persiflage and satire and can only regret that what it pleads for and suggests should have had so little effect on those who regulate our systems of higher education End of chapter twelve